Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. For more information, visit ChristCovenant.com. These words come to us inspired and true as if Jesus himself were speaking to us. So look behind me as we read this. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man now there was a man of the pharisees named nicodemus a ruler of the jews this man came to jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from god for no one can do these signs unless unless god is with him jesus answered him truly truly i say to you unless one is born again he cannot see the kingdom of god Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I I ask that you would just bless this reading of your word. Um, You would open our hearts to it. And by the power of the Spirit, your truth would come alive to us. And that the deception, Father, that is so frequent in our hearts um, would be undone. And that we would see you for who you are. We would see ourselves for who we are seek um, the salvation that you've given us in Jesus. And I pray all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, if you know anything about 20th century African-American history, uh, you you know the name Langston Hughes. He was an author, a columnist, a poet. Uh, He wrote a lot um, even about kind of civil rights. He was, was kind of before what we know uh, in history as the civil rights movement, but he was kind of a forerunner uh, to the civil rights movement. He wrote an interesting autobiography uh, called The Big C. And in it, he describes his own conversion experience, um, sort of. He says this, I was saved from sin when I was going on 13, but not really saved. It happened like this. 
there was a big revival at my Auntie Reed's church. And every night for weeks, there had been much preaching, singing, praying, and shouting. Finally, all the young people had gone to the front of the church to be saved, except for one little boy and me. His name was Wesley. Wesley and I were surrounded by sisters and deacons praying. It was very hot in the church and getting late now. Finally, Wesley said to me in a whisper, I'm tired of sitting here. Let's get up and be saved. So he got up and was saved. And I was left all alone on the mourner's bench. My aunt came and knelt at my knees and cried while prayers and songs swirled around me in the little church. The whole congregation prayed for me alone in a mighty wail of moans and voices. God had not struck Wesley dead for taking his name in vain or lying to the temple. So I decided that maybe to save further trouble, I'd better lie too and say that Jesus had come and get up and be saved. So I got up. The likes of Hughes, uh, of course, lived and died for what everybody would know is an atheist, a very committed atheist, in fact, a very persuasive atheist. It's interesting hearing a story like this. You may have had a similar kind of experience in some sort of a revival meeting, or maybe you know people that have, and maybe you know, you've seen them follow a similar path that Langston Hughes followed. I certainly have friends like this that I knew that had, had obviously shown a, a movement toward the Lord somewhere along the way in church life uh, that now are no longer walking with the Lord. Some of them uh, are adamantly uh, opposed to the things of God and to the Christian life. Maybe you're just here today and, and you're kind of for the first time exploring Christianity. You've heard about some of the things that Christians believe and it seems a little odd, it seems a little strange, but you, you want to dig deeper and, and I'm grateful that you're here. But you've heard these kinds of phrases that Christians use, like getting saved. What does that mean? Or being born again. What does that mean? What what are we talking about when we say those kinds of things? Or what do Christians mean when we say, have you been saved? Saved from what? What does any of this mean? And, and how, maybe you're thinking, if I am saved, if I'm supposed to be saved and righteous in Christ, why do I continue to sin? Why, why are these things such a struggle? Or, or maybe you've thought if Christians are supposedly saved from death, why do we still die someday? Um, or, or what about, can you lose your salvation? Somebody that maybe made a, uh, um, a profession of faith or walked with the Lord for a time, maybe even did something for the Lord that was pretty dramatic. And, and then later on, you see that same person rejecting the faith. Uh, we've seen this recently with even Christian pastors or Christian leaders of different types. So what does all of this mean? And what should we do with this? How should we think about this? And if you've ever had any of those questions, maybe you've asked all of those questions, I'm really glad that you're here today. And I hope that you'll be here over the next four weeks because we're going to be talking about all of these things. We're going to be talking about what Christians believe, but particularly what Christians believe as it pertains to salvation. 
this idea called salvation or salvation theology. If you've been to First Sunday, which is our new members class, we, we basically tell you what we believe as a church, what it means to be a part of our church. And by the way, if you've not come to First Sunday and you're interested in our church, we are actually having it this afternoon at 4 p.m. Um, and so I invite you to come, but you do need to sign up because it includes a meal and we want to be prepared. But, uh, but, but anyway, if you've gone to First Sunday, you, you know that one of the things we do is we walk through our church confession. And the longest thing that we confess, we, we confess what we believe about God and the Bible, what we believe about the church, several other things, but the longest section of that confession has to do with salvation, what we understand salvation to be, and how one is saved, how one is uh, saved by God. And, and what we really mean when we're saying saved or salvation is that someone is coming back into a right relationship with the Almighty God, that someone no longer has to fear God uh, because of their sin, but they actually can be accepted and loved by God. That's what it means. That's what we're saying when we say, this is what it means to be saved. So over the next four weeks, we're actually going to be talking sort of about our confession of belief. One of the things, our, our statement on salvation uh, basically walks through what, what has been called in Christian history and Christian theology, the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. What is happening when we talk about this big idea of salvation? Now, there's a lot of different kind of points of interest or theological terms that you'll hear when people talk about salvation, everything from election to conversion, adoption, perseverance. But through this series, I just want to talk about four big ideas. And again, we could spend a lot more time on this. Uh, we could spend a lot more time on any of these things that, that I'm going to spend in this series, and we could spend a lot more time in this series. But for this series, I want to talk about four big ideas that I think will be really helpful for you. Uh, regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now, you may be saying, I don't know what any of those words mean. Well, that's why you're here. So you, you got to come the next four weeks, right? So if you pay attention, by the end of this, you'll know what those four means, and, and you'll understand this all the more. So we're going to be talking about these things over the next four weeks, and you might be saying, well, this kind of seems impractical. And, and I just want to say to you, what you believe about these things and how you understand these things will determine the rest of your eternity. And there's nothing more practical than that, right? There's nothing more practical than where, you, where your soul will be for all of eternity. So this is, inc this is incredibly useful for you and for me. And so it's good that we're thinking about these things together. And, and I want to say this too, over the next four weeks, I, I really want to be clear on these things, uh, maybe a little bit more than inspirational. Uh, I hope that you're inspired by these sermons, but I, I, I want you to be... Um, I want your head to be clear as we think about these things uh, together. Now, I can't think of a better place to go to if we're going to be thinking about regeneration, as we're going to look at today, than John 2 and 3, where we, where we just read. These are incredibly helpful verses when thinking about what is this idea of regeneration, or literally, regeneration means to, to regenerate or to be born again, the, the new birth, to, to create again, to be born again. And you may have heard that uh, phrase in, in Christian circles, to be born again or to experience the new birth. Uh, this is this idea of regeneration. 
And as we look at John 2 and 3, there's, there's three things that I want to talk about in the, in the text. First of all, the man, the new man, and the test of the new man. The man, the new man, and the test of the new man. Now, John 2 ends in a very interesting way. We, we started, of course, not in John 3, which is kind of the more famous passage on regeneration. We start at the end of 2 because I, I think it, it's very telling and helpful. It sets up 3. So let me just read the passage again, 23 and 24. This is what Tara read earlier in 25. It says, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs and the works that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, this is a fascinating passage, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in man. Now, there's a couple of assumptions, I think, that a lot of people have pertaining to life and Christianity in particular that this passage really undoes here. The first kind of major assumption that, that most people have is that most people are basically good people, right? People are good. People are good folks. You know, there's there, this guy is a good guy. You know, when I was I was thinking uh, this week, I was, when I was at Fraternity Rush at Auburn, guys would stand up and give speeches for guys that they wanted to be in the fraternity, and it would always be something like, you know, this is Stephen Jones, he played basketball and baseball in high school, he's from Chattanooga, he has an older sister who's in the sorority, and he's a good guy. He's a real good guy. <laughs> you know, this is Peter Erickson, he's from Roswell, really smart guy, really smart guy, had a 4.0, carried a 4.0 in high school, got a 34 in his ACT, and Peter is a good guy. You know, that was our big selling point. We were all supposed to be like, oh, <laughs> let's get him in, you know. <laughs> Who doesn't want a good guy? But that, everybody's a good guy, right? The, the assumption that most people have, this guy is a good guy. But, but it's interesting if you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't speak this way about human nature. It actually speaks kind of the opposite way. It says that we're naturally not good. Ephesians 2, it, it says... In Romans 3, that no one is righteous. Uh, no one is good. Romans 3, it says in Romans 6, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's interesting. This is kind of one of those places where I would challenge you to stop and think. You know, a, a lot of people like, well, we have our little church thing over here and we're supposed to say these verses. And then, but over here we realize, no, th this is kind of the way the world works. But this is one of these things where the common assumption of the world, everybody's a good guy. And what the Bible says, no one's a good guy. They're so different th that I think this should give us a pause where we actually ask the question, is the Bible true here? I is this right or are we terribly wrong in the way that we understand the world. And I love, I love how it's phrased here. It says that Jesus knew what was in a man. Jesus knew what was in a man. Jesus peered through the heart of men. He knew what was really in a man. And that's a fascinating passage. You know, we all do a really good job of covering up ourselves and presenting ourselves as good guys and as good gals. But, you know, I've, I've given this illustration before, but I think it's really helpful that the way that I think I could help you 
maybe come over to the biblical side here, is, you know, if, if I had a, some of you heard me say this before, but if, if I had a screen, a big screen like this, and I could just say, look, who would volunteer? Which one of the good guys and good gals of this congregation would volunteer to have every one of your deeds that you've done? And every one of, and the Bible says, you know, the, the Bible judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Not only have the deeds that you've done, but to have all of the thoughts that you have thought. Even just the thoughts you've thought this week. And all of your intentions, right? A lot of times you do something that seems really good, but it, your intentions aren't so good. What if you would have all your intentions put on this screen behind me? I mean, y'all are good guys, right? Who would volunteer? Of the good people in this church. Y'all are church, y'all are Christians, right? Who would volunteer to say, oh yeah, you can show every thought I've had this week. No, of course, no one would volunteer for that. Because if I did show that video, every one of you would be so horrified. You would be so embarrassed at the thoughts that you have actually had. That anybody else, that all of these people would know what's going through your heart. That no one would stand up and say, yeah, I'm a good guy. I'm a good gal. No, you'd actually, like Jesus, if that were to happen, then we would know what was in a man. And we, like Jesus, would know that we are in trouble, that we are not righteous, that we have no standing before a holy God. We don't even want to stand before sinful people if everything is known. Much less do we want to stand before a totally righteous and powerful God. So the first assumption is everybody is good, but Jesus knows what was in man. A second assumption that most people uh, make that, that I think is interesting. We, we kind of have this notion that any movement toward Jesus, any belief in Jesus, uh, will give us salvation or favor. But this is a fascinating verse because that doesn't seem to be true here. It, it says in the passage that many began to believe in him, to believe that he was the Messiah, but Jesus himself didn't entrust himself to them. What does that mean? <laughs> it, it, it means that any belief in Jesus doesn't save you. It's a specific kind of belief in Jesus. A kind of belief that actually changes your heart. And that brings us to the next part of the passage here, the next point. We've looked at the man. But secondly, we, let's look at the new man. Look at verse 24. I want to. I there's an interesting interplay here, okay? You, you don't notice this because of the chapter breaks. Right? One of the great things about the Bible is that we have chapters and verses, but it's also one of the bad things about the Bible is because it messes up the way that we read the Bible. Without chapters and verses, we'd be like, all right, it's 10 paragraphs from the beginning of the book. And so it'd be really hard to find anything. But the chapters and verses also kind of mess up the way that we read this. So let's just read this as if there's no chapter break here. Verse 24, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. That's the end of chapter 2, okay? So just keep that in mind. Beginning of 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. Okay? So this is interesting, right? You're supposed to see this as, ah, Jesus, John is illustrating what is meant by here? He's, he knows about man. He knows what's in the heart of man. And here is an example. Here's 
Nicodemus. And he's not just a man. I mean, this is Nicodemus. This is a serious man. He's the man. This was an age when political leaders and religious leaders really had all the power. And yet Nicodemus sees something in Jesus. He was willing to humble himself before Jesus and come to him with these questions. Now, he came to him at night, right? He wasn't, he wasn't willing to let people know that he was meeting with Jesus. But even just the fact that he was willing to come to Jesus shows something here. He says, Rabbi, this is a very humble statement for a Pharisee to make. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God. For no one could do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Do you see the faith? Do you see the recognition of who Jesus is here? Now, again, if you're familiar with how Pharisees understood Jesus, how they looked at Jesus at this time, you know, we, we live in this very politically divided age. There are people that I know. I remember when Obama was president. There are people that I know, and it, it didn't matter what Obama did. I mean, he could be like hugging a child, and they'd be like, he's such a scoundrel, you know? Or, you know, Trump today. I mean, it doesn't matter what the guy does. Some people would be like, he's such an idiot. And it's just like he just was standing there. You know, I mean, and so <laughs> this is kind of this political age that we are in. It's so divided. It doesn't matter what the person is doing. There's just, they're the enemy, and therefore they can do no good. This is kind of the moment that we're in in the first century. This is how the Pharisees were viewing Jesus. And so just the fact. They, they, Jesus was a threat to them. He was always speaking against them. And so just the fact that this Pharisee, this great teacher of the law, is coming to Jesus and saying something like this is a fascinating admission. He is saying, I know that you are from God. For no one can do these things unless God is with him. But look how Jesus answers. Verse 3. Jesus answered, truly I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of questions that come to mind here. The first question is, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to be born again, to be regenerate? Well, we say in our confession here, and again, there's a lot that's been written about this. I'm not saying our confession is the standard systematic theology position on this, but uh, this is a helpful statement. It says, for individual believers, salvation begins with regeneration in which God imparts, this is the idea here, new life into a spiritually dead person. God imparts new life into a spiritually dead person. Now, again, there's a lot to think about here, but, but how this kind of takes place or what's happening at regeneration. You know, for some people... Some of you, you, you get this because you've experienced this. For some people, it, it, it can happen in a moment. There, there is one moment in your life where you literally have experienced, I was blind, but now I see. God came to me and quickly opened my eyes. For some people, it was more of a process. It took some time uh, for them to actually come into an understanding of God. Uh, for other people, it, 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 it was just kind of a random event that, that happened, but, but what this is getting at, what, what new life being imparted to a believer is, is, that, is that you have developed in your heart a God consciousness. The new birth happens, I like to say it this way, the new birth happens when you can't lie to yourself anymore about who God is and who you are. The new birth happens 
when by the work of the Holy Spirit you see clearly again. I used to, for years, I'd read the story of the Garden of Eden, fall of man. And you get so frustrated, right? For a long time, I would read that story and get very frustrated because it's like, golly, I mean, God was so good to them. He gave them so much. He did so much for them. He supplied everything for them. And all they had to do was obey one simple command, and yet they couldn't do it. What was wrong with Adam and Eve? But, you know, the older I get, I read that with a little more compassion. What happened? Their, Their hearts were blind to how good God was. Their hearts were blind to how destructive sin is. They had scales over their eyes. They were deceived. And you know what? The same thing is true of you and me. That's why we sin. I mean, why would we ever disobey the good God who has created all things? Why would we ever not trust him? Why would we ever assume that we, simple, small human beings, know better. You know why? It's because we're blind. That's what sin does. Our hearts are chained by our desires that are contrary to God's order. And really what the new birth is, it's not that it's not that you don't have those desires anymore. It's not that you never obey those desires. It's that your eyes are open to where you can see that God is good and right and that I have sinned against him. This has been described in history as the scales falling off your eyes, as your chains falling off. Finally, I can see God and his goodness, and now I know how much I need him. Now, that leads to another question. How does the new birth happen? Well, there's a number of things to keep in mind here. For some people, you experience the new birth, this kind of moment of God consciousness at the lowest point of your life. I've heard this story, right? He was arrested. Somebody lost a loved one. Somebody had their heart broken in some particular way. Somebody got sick. And all of a sudden, that, that moment, that humiliating moment, actually is what God used to, to remove the deception, to remove self-justification, to open their eyes, to see how good God was, and, and to see how much they had offended him, and to see their need for God. Some people, it, it happened in a very normal experience, right? It just was not a big dramatic thing. It was a very normal thing. As I said before, for some people, it's it's a longer process. Most often, I think that we see in Scripture and we've seen in life, a lot of times this moment of regeneration happens when you're sitting underneath the Word of God being preached. You know, for some of you, regeneration may be happening right now where you're hearing this word of God go forward and your heart is responding. There's something in you that's saying, that is true, that is right. We believe at Christ's covenant that the word of God, the Bible is inspired by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, as it goes out, it's as if the spirit is going out and working on our hearts. And so through the preaching of the Bible, through the reading of the Bible, um, our hearts come to life. And when regeneration happens, it's like we're coming alive. We're coming alive to what God has done. We're coming alive to our need for, uh, for him. Uh, it's, it's this idea of being born again. And that's a radical idea. Some of you have heard me say this before. But the way that we even describe this 
if you really think about what does a new birth mean, it's a radical description. You know, becoming a Christian, coming into the Christian faith, you know, is it, is it like getting a new job? Well, you know, some of you have gotten a new job. Some of you have made a major career shift right in the middle of your career. And that is, that is incredibly disruptive, right? Who, who, I mean, I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but who here has that experience where you, you were in a career, you were doing this job, and then you, you switched over here, it, it, it totally changed the way you, your relationships, it changed the way what you did every day, it was very disruptive in your life. Some of you, you know, it, it, but that's not what the Bible describes the new birth as. You may say, well, is the new birth like moving, right? Now, some of you young folks, right, that are, have moved, you don't understand really what it's like to move. You know, between the time I was like 18 and... 30, I moved like 12 times, right, or more, 15 times. And, you know, you'd move. You'd, you'd, you'd kind of put everything in a bag, and you move, right? It's like going on vacation and moving were similar. But, but then, you know, you get married, you have children, and you accumulate things. You buy a house, and you got to fill the house. You buy furniture. And, and then, then when you move, it is the worst, okay? Maybe just, like, don't ever get the stuff. Just, if you can't fit it in your moving bag, then don't buy it. Man, but is, is becoming a Christian like that? No. No, that's not, that's not how, no, it says to, to, to be born again, or to become a Christian is to be born again. It, it's to get a whole new life. And this is a radical description. It's, it's becoming a brand new person. It's a whole new life. And the last thing to remember here is that regeneration, as we've been singing this morning, is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's something that only God can do in our lives. You can hear the same sermon. You can experience the same scripture reading. You can sing the same song as someone else, and it, to and it affects your life in a totally different way. One may, God may use to bring about regeneration in this person. One may, God may use to bring about regeneration in that person. But this is a spiritual act. As, the, as Jesus says here, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. You, you can't force regeneration. You can't manipulate regeneration. Jesus says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Well, you might be thinking here, okay, well, if, if this is the work of the Spirit, then what's our, what are we supposed to do <laughs> in response to this sermon? Just sit around and wait for the Spirit to work? Or, or how do I know that the Holy Spirit of God is at work in me? And, and that brings us to our third point here, which is the test of the new man. We've talked about the man, the new man, and, and now the test of the new man. How do you know that you're born again? How do you know that God has come alive in your heart? And, and there's a lot of places that we could look for evidence here, but, but three things that I really believe are true of people that have been born again, have, who have experienced this new life in Christ. And the first is repentance. Have you seen your sin? Do you really believe that you have sinned against God? Or are you just trying to justify everything in your life? Do you really, do you really see that you have done something to offend the almighty God. Do you see your sin? 
And again, this is why we need the Word of God. It's the Word of God that opens our hearts to these things. This is why we need rest. This is why you need solitude. This is why you need to be alone in the quiet sometimes. It's in moments like that where you can actually experience transcendence, where you move out of just the milieu of the day today and can hear the voice of the Lord. This is why we need worship. This is why we need Christian community. Is there any sense of God in your life, or do you fear those times? There's a lot of people that never get alone and get quiet. There's a lot of people that never come into a worship service like this and have to sit still underneath the preaching of God's word because they don't really want to hear from God. But the regenerate heart realizes that it needs to hear from God because it's sinned against God. It is broken. Of Augustine said, if we don't rightly see God, we don't rightly see anything. And it's until we really begin to see God that we can rightly see ourselves and our need for him. So first is repentance. The second evidence of a regenerate heart, of a, a heart that's born again, is a trust in Jesus. When we really see how great God is, we see how needy we are, then we can begin to understand what God in Christ has done for us. This is why the Christian message is so amazing, that, that people like us who have sinned against the almighty God might be rescued by the very God that we are offending. The very God that we are running from, the very God that we turn our backs on, comes after us to call us in. This is the Christian gospel. This is the message of the Christian gospel. In our most helpless state, in our most offensive state, God has sent Jesus to rescue us. And the way that Jesus has saved us, has rescued us, we're going to be talking a lot more about next week. But what Jesus has done for us, remember the video? Remember the video that no one wants to be shown? What Jesus has done for us to save us is he's taken our record. He's taken that video. He's taken it and applied it to himself. That's why he went to the cross. He went to the cross to pay the price of our sin against God. And Jesus, in return for our record, gives us his record, his sinless and perfect record. And so if through faith in Christ you have the record of Christ, then you can go before God as hopeful and as bold if you actually had the righteousness of Jesus. This is the Christian gospel. We're going to talk about this more next week. Jesus took on our sinful record and went to the cross, and he gives us his perfect record so that we can rightly be restored to God. And the evidence of the new birth is, first of all, repentance, that you're broken in your sin, but second of all, that you believe what I just said, that you have faith in Jesus. That you're actually trusting in the righteousness of Jesus to justify your life. You know, everyone has faith in something. Every one of you has faith in something. Every person in Atlanta has faith in something. For a lot of people, it's their successes. We believe in our successes. After all, I must be a good person. Look how successful I've been. Look at all the good I've been able to do. I must be a good person. Look, look, how, look at all these things I've built. Look at all these things I've made. Look at how I've used my life. I must be good. Some people have faith in their Christian obedience, right? I know I'm good because I always do what the preacher tells me to do. 
I know I'm good because I, I've never disobeyed the Ten Commandments. I know I'm good because of this, because of this. Everybody has faith in something. But a regenerate heart has faith in Jesus, has faith in Jesus alone. A regenerate heart believes that no, there's, nothing, there's nothing that I could do that is good. What have I done that would stand up against a holy and almighty God? Let me just ask you that. If you're, if you're having faith in your successes I'm sure your portfolio is impressive. But how does it measure against the God who owns the cosmos, who created you, who actually gave you every bit of talent, every bit of blessing that you have in order to create this impressive portfolio? H how are you going to explain to him with your little, you know, vice president of sales, portfolio that you are good with all of this sin on your record. The regenerate heart realizes, no, no matter what you've done, I need a savior. And the beautiful news of the gospel is that we have such a savior. That the very record of Jesus himself can be applied to us through faith. So repentance Faith, and then the last thing is just a love for the things of God. Is there really a love for the things of God in your heart and in your life? Do you love the things of God? You know, I was talking with Jason Byers this week. He has a men's group. Some of you that are in his group on Friday mornings. He, he was saying, you know, we walked through John 15 and, and just talked about evidences that we are fruit-bearing, connected to the vine. That's what the, the, Jesus gives this illustration of being connected to a vine in John 15. What, what are evidences that you are connected to the vine, that you are faithful? And he, and he just said, hey, there's a few in there. And I love this. The, the, he and his men study, they just went through and they pulled these things out that are so clearly in the text. Bold prayer, right? Do you, do you love God so much? Do you trust God enough to pray boldly? Joy. Are you delighted by God? Obedience. Do you love the law of God and the way of God? Sacrificial love. Do you love the people of God? Do you love the same people that God loves? These are evidences that you love the things of God, that the work of the Spirit is doing a work in your life. Do you love the things of God? Are you drawn to the things of God? I just want to say this. This is not in my notes. This is an aside. I don't understand how Christians would not want to gather to worship every week. I don't understand. I just don't understand it. And I'm not trying to sound super righteous here, but I just don't understand how anything else can take precedence over this as a priority in your life. If you love the things of God and you love the people of God, then what's better than gathering with the people of God to worship God? That's evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. And if you don't love this, I wouldn't be so assured of my salvation. I wouldn't be so assured that God was working in my life. Repentance, a recognition of our sinfulness against God, faith, trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, and a love for the things of God. Now, the last question I want to ask of this passage is, was Nicodemus born again, right? Was Nicodemus born again? It's not really clear in John 3 
right? He, he has all these questions through the passage. I mean, Jesus says, are you really a teacher? I mean, how do you not know these things? Was Nicodemus regenerate? And again, based on what I just said, I think the answer is yes. And I hope this is hopeful for you. Some of you may be coming here today with as many questions as Nicodemus had. And maybe as little understanding of the Christian gospel as Nicodemus has here. But we see a few things in Nicodemus. First of all, I, I do believe we, we at least see, if it's not repentance, we see evidence of his need. I mean, this is a Pharisee. This is the teacher of the law, the text said. And yet he's still coming to Jesus. He's still intrigued by Jesus. He still, he still recognizes his need for Jesus. The second thing that we see is just a faith in Jesus, a trust for Jesus. He says, look, you are from God. I know that you are from God. And it's interesting how Jesus responds. He says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's as if Jesus is saying, the reason you know these things, Nicodemus, is because you're born again. The reason you know these things is because God has opened your heart to see who I am. Not perfectly yet, but your heart has been opened. And I just want to say this. I pray that right now God is opening your hearts. God is opening your hearts. By the power of the Spirit, God is creating a God consciousness, a new birth in your heart. Now, some of you here you have been a believer for many years you know the bible you've taken systematic theology classes you've discipled people you've led people to faith in christ and some of you here this may be the first time you've been in a worship service in years and all of this is foggy and confusing i just want to say it doesn't matter it doesn't matter if you're the christian champion or if you're just just beginning to explore the voice of jesus will be as clear it will be clear and if the Spirit's at work in your life, you'll hear the voice of Jesus. You'll feel the call of Jesus. The, the work of Christ is, is happening in your heart right now. Some of you, God is wooing you to himself. Listen to his voice. Draw near to him. Even if, even if it's not clear, even if it's foggy, this is evidence. I mean, just even the fact that you're here, to me, is evidence that the Spirit's at work in your life. Christians believe crazy things. If you're new to Christianity, I'll go ahead and just tell you. We believe that a previously dead man is the champion of the universe. So they, our cards are on the table. And yet we're still here. And yet somehow these things make sense to us. And that's evidence of the Spirit's work in our life. That, that somehow God could be actually pursuing us through his son Jesus. That's evidence of the Spirit's work in our lives. And I... I believe Nicodemus believed that. And, you know, we, we actually know he did. Because even though here in John 3, he's coming to Jesus by night, confused, with a lot of questions, Nicodemus shows up again in the story. And you know where that is? You know, Nicodemus comes back. He has a sequel in the Gospel of John. Only that time, it's in John 19. It's not here in the cover of darkness. It's actually right after Jesus died on the cross. And it was Nicodemus 
another guy named Joseph of Arimathea who went to go and get the dead body of Jesus. And it says that he brought pounds of embalmment and, and linen to wrap him in. And they cared for this person that was such a threat to their kind, such a threat to their power. And together he and Joseph Arimathea laid him in this tomb, not in the cover of darkness, but in the most public and dangerous place that he possibly could have identified with Jesus, he identified with Jesus. Now some of you today that are beginning to to lean into the work of Jesus, you may not be willing to go to the most public and dangerous place yet. Some of you are. But I pray that you, in this place, would identify with him. You would identify with Jesus today. And one of the ways that Christians live out the things that we believe, repentance, trust in Jesus, a love for the things of the Lord, is through uh, this Christian act of communion, or the Lord's Supper. You know, communion is confession. When we take the bread of communion, we are confessing that we need, we needed for the body of Christ to be broken. And we needed for the blood of Jesus to be spilled. We needed a savior because our sin ran deep before Almighty God. Communion is not just confession, it's also faith, right? We're saying what I'm trusting in for my sin, what I'm trusting in for my life is Jesus, is the love of Jesus that Jesus has pursued and sought after me, that Jesus actually did this for me. And you know, communion is love. It's a recognition of our love for God, but it's also a recognition of our love for one another. We take communion together. You know, there may be some people in this room and you come from families with amazing reputations and everybody knows who your family is and you come from a wonderful background. There may be some people in, in this room and you have no heritage to speak of. There's a lot of shame in your past. There may be some people in this room and you're worth millions of dollars. There may be some people in this room and you're worth like $5. There may be some people in this room who, you know, everybody looks at you with respect and honor and there may be some people at you and you just like, nobody looks at me like that. But when we take communion together, we take it together. We take it as one. We take it as a family, as a body. And we're saying, look, my righteousness is in Christ. And that guy's righteousness is in Christ. And that guy's righteousness is in Christ. And that lady's righteousness is in Christ. And that's our true identity. We take it as a people that love one another because these are the people that Jesus loves. And that is what is ultimate. And so in a few moments here, I just invite you to identify with Jesus in this way. To publicly identify with Jesus in this way. Now, if, if you're not ready to identify with Jesus, if, you, if, if you're not in a place where you are repentant, you're trusting in Christ for your salvation, where you love the things of God, if you're still exploring this, the Bible actually says don't take this in vain. Don't, don't, don't dishonor me and the rest of these people in here because we are trusting in Jesus by, by, by doing this act lightly. But if you are in the faith, then here in a few moments after I pray, 
I invite you to come. And, and I just would invite you, if you'll leave the rows to the right side and go back up, your right, and go back up on the left, to come to the front and take these elements, and then hold the elements, we'll take them together. And, and lastly, if there's someone here today and you would just like for me to pray with you and to just come alongside you in whatever way, I'm going to be standing in the back by the sound booth. I would love that opportunity. Just feel free to slip back there. I'd be happy to answer any questions, to pray with you, whatever is needed. But let's pray together now as we prepare our hearts to come. Father, I pray now that by the power of your spirit, you would, you would woo us, you would draw us in. You would draw us to yourself. You would, you would pull the scales off of our eyes, that we would no longer be able to deceive ourselves into uh, an illusion of righteousness that is so frail and weak and so corruptible in your sight. But that we would see how deeply we need a Savior and, and how deeply Jesus has provided for us salvation. And that we would trust in Him. We would rest in Him. That we would, we would rest before you and before others in the righteousness of Father, as we take this meal, I pray, Father, you would increase our faith, increase our love for you, and increase our love for one another. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the Christ Covenant Sermon Podcast. If you have any prayer needs, questions, or comments about the sermon, we would love to hear from you. So please text us at 678-951-9041. Or feel free to email Jason at jason at christcovenant.com.